Welcome oh, to think. Sorry, hold on. I need to open the window. It's so warm in there. Yeah. Oh, that's, the quickest, that's, the, that's, the, that's the most rapid interruption ever, presumably, for a podcast episode. You, you barely got a second into it. Sorry. <laughs> Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Neil Almond. Lovely to be here. And we're back with another episode where my unsuspecting guests field questions they have not yet seen. But first, Chris, what you reading for? What are you reading for? This week, oh, in the past week, I have been reading a book called The Scientific Principles of Teaching Reading by uh, Nathaniel Hansford. I had the pleasure of meeting him recently, and his book aligns so beautifully with what his, um, the way he portrays himself on Twitter and who he is as a person, in that I think he's one of the real unique voices in reading education he is arguably one of the most conscientious scholars and interpreters of reading evidence that i've met i I would say as well that he possibly sometimes ruffles people's feathers by being quite cautious in his interpretations of the evidence but i think it just lends him if anything even more authority when he does come to a position Specifically, the book that he's read looks at the value of meta-analyses in reading. He explores that in depth. If that is of interest to you, then this book will be a treasure trove. He's got a great blog as well, and you can follow him on Twitter um, using at NateJoseph19. Highly recommended. Um, Great guy. Really interesting book. What about you, Neil? What are you reading for? So I'm going for a listen this week, but it kind of links with reading and it's called, funnily enough, The End of the World. And it's from a podcast called The Boring Talks. Now, um, I don't know if we have any Douglas Adam fans and uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in here. Lovely. Well, obviously, you know, we know that the end of the world did happen, but, you know, the, the precise date of the end of the world is never mentioned. So what this person does Steve Cross who's just a guest um the boring talks before I go but it's just you find people to come on and just talk about boring mundane things like there's a really interesting episode about um the black market of European palettes if you know that's something that tickles your boat but this the first one um this chap Steve Cross does a closed read of um the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to try and work out when um the Armageddon occurred in the Hitchhiker's Guide of the Galaxy. So it's like a really, if you've if you've heard the term closed reading, you're just like, well, how is that different to just like reading a book, uh, you know, like a, a first read, a simple layered read, etc. Use this. I think if you were doing like a, a whole day uh, reading CPD, that kind of went from like uh, phonics and like the necessary skills to be uh, proficient at that, fluency, uh, you know, what comprehension is, and then like finally this idea of like layered reads, sorry, closed reads, 
I would definitely spend 20 minutes just to play this at the end, just to say, and this is like what, like, obviously you're not going to get primary kids to do it, but like, this is what this actually is because it's really quite clever. The lovely little twist at the end, which I won't spoil because I honestly think, uh, Chris, if you haven't listened to this, you would really, really enjoy it. And uh, Kieran, I'm sure you would too. So definitely uh, recommend it. I think it's, yeah, it's 21 minutes long. It's not, not long at all. Thoroughly recommend it. What about you, Kieran? What are you reading for? Nice. That sounds great. I mean, in terms of uh, the European black market for palettes, I know about, well, via someone who works in a certain industry, that uh, about a, uh, quite a large company who were using non-regulation pallets for transport and things. So uh, I've, I've almost had like third-hand experience of this uh, this phenomenon. So I'm going to have to listen. I'm actually going to listen to that exactly what it's all about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. If, if, if people didn't think I was a nerd before... <laughs> <laughs> they've just got bingo there sorry I, was, I, was, I thought it was way darker than you guys are thinking i'm thinking it's like pallets is in the roof of your mouth so people are like <laughs> decapitating people taking away chunks of their face but no thankfully that's obviously not what you're referring to in this case i mean i'm gonna go for listening too um i mean recently we've seen the return of craig barton's long form podcasts and Someone who I've worked with in the past, Craig Latimer, works at the Creative Education Trust with uh, Namish in the in the Midlands, and he's sort of responsible for mathematics. And he talks about his approach to planning mathematics. And I know that we, for a long time, have said, "Well, we need to sit down and talk about this ourselves." But actually, if you listen to that, I think it's close to three hours, eight minutes. They they've pretty much nailed everything you could possibly talk about when it comes to the planning maths. And Craig, both Craigs think really deeply about um, teaching and about their practice and it's uh yeah it's really good and i've got peps's new episode lined up as well so i'm um, yeah really pleased to have those there uh, to have those back so this week we've got some questions that have been sent in via twitter or via the Tadapia discord you guys haven't seen them but it's just i think instead of shouldering the burden of expertise as we sometimes try and do when we're having more sort of not, not more serious because some of these are serious topics but you know i think it's definitely more opinion based in this situation so don't stress about the responses you give because i know that you both like to be extremely prepared when you are talking from that position of experience and expertise and um, so the first one says that we've just been told in a meeting that we're going to try no hands up at the start of next term and it's going to be a whole school initiative. Now, I like cold calling and use it as one of my questioning techniques, normally signaling um, to children before asking a question. But I've never gone as far as no hands. What should I read and what pitfalls should I consider as I prepare for this change? I'm going to get my copy of TLAC off the shelf. What else do I need to know? Given the history of things like no hands up, I would consider going right back to the OG with um, Black and William looking at like the origins of the of you know AFL, looking at formative assessment. So inside the black box is a great place to start. Um, I believe, unless I'm mistaken, oh, I read it a while ago. I can't remember the title, so I'm not going to go go there. But uh, Dylan William has. Uh, 
books on formative assessment that I'd highly recommend. I think it's, is it embedded formative assessment? Is that the word I'm looking for? Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, Dylan William has some really good stuff. Um, Shirley Clark also, um, you know, a lot of her work is based on William's formative assessment stuff, but she puts her own little spin on it. And I remember reading one of like her books about um, formative assessment, which mentions, you know, why we should be doing this as well as various other things. So I'd add that one to the list. In terms of maybe like why you wouldn't, um, Pratesh um, put out a really interesting blog, literally, I think like the last week about how like he insists on like all hands up, despite the fact that, um, you know, he'll always cold call, but he always like, in terms of like 100% attention. I don't know whether it's just the fact like it's, I briefly read it and I say, we've, we've had the holidays and, you know, it's all a blur already, but whether just that simple act of being like, he asks questions. So, you know, there's that active movement just kind of, you know, keeps people's attention rather than the whole, just, well, I can just sit here and twiddle my thumbs. Um, you know, that might be something that you want to think about. Well, maybe we do this. And I kind of think from my understanding, the reason why schools go for these like no hands up like policies is just because, um, you know, cold calling isn't, embedded at all um and so it's almost like the the cold turkey approach i think where it's like if we just like go right just gonna say don't do it um that kind of builds the habit formation up for the teachers and kind of builds those expectations through to um you know for the kids to what to expect i would be really surprised if it remains always like a, a never put your hands up <clears throat> sort of thing because i think there is some value in perhaps you know sometimes just asking you know a quick you know check for understanding it, it's if you know it put your hand up because then you know you might then go and ask the kids who don't have their hand up still while still getting a bit of understanding about what what's coming back if the question isn't something that you can you know, could bash out on a mini whiteboard quite quickly am i right in thinking is that Ritesh, and I apologise for my pronunciation if it's off, uh, Raichura, is that? Raichura, yeah. The reason I did not say the surname is because I too was not sure how to spell it. So I was like, oh, yeah, no, I, I thought I would, <laughs> um, I, I, I will take on board that culturally yeah. sensitive burden and my, my apologies to you, Ritesh, if I'm yeah. not. So Famously of, uh, you know, Michaela, now he works for, at ARC. I've, you know, met him a few times. Really, really good bloke. Um, writes a lot about the you know the minutiae of teaching you know i don't know many people who could write several hundred words on the topic of you know get everyone to put their hands up and you know put a positive educational reason behind it so he's definitely worth a worth a find worth a follow because he definitely does some interesting stuff yeah i mean in terms of pitfalls it depends on the age range presumably we're talking primary teachers Kids can, however um, carefully you word this stuff, kids can take stuff quite, liter quite literally. And if you reach a situation where a child um, struggles to, th you know, put their hand up to ask a question or put their hand up to say that they need to go to the toilet as a result, obviously, you know, I don't need to go into detail on the issues that can come about through that. So being careful around that, lots and lots of following up with, Okay, if you need to answer, ask a question though, or if you've got a problem, you can still put your hand up. That might need lots of reiterating if in other circumstances you're trying to say, look, no, I don't want your hands up when I ask a question because 
that like conditional side of it sometimes gets a little bit lost. Um, I agree with you about the idea of, I do think there's valuable information that you can take when you ask a question and you still cold call, but you've got some hands up first. You get a sense of, you know, confidence or perhaps across the class, you get a sense of which children are happy just to like venture an answer when they're not sure, which children always keep their hand down even when they know it. So there are pitfalls to that approach. Um, but I also, I, I totally get on board with the idea that if you want to go using your expression cold turkey, there are good reasons for that because it's such a deeply embedded habit of, you know, putting your hands up to answer questions that sometimes yeah. you, you sometimes you just need to draw a line under it if you want to change practice across a whole school. Uh, one final thing would be if you feel like it's not quite working for you and so you want to try and adapt it, bear in mind that your colleagues are probably struggling with the same thing and it would be much easier for you to kind of achieve this together if you're all sticking with it. So discuss it with your colleagues, discuss it with, um, you know, senior leadership about how it's going and what, you know, what struggles you're having with it. And hopefully it will work out for the best. Just one more kind of pitfall, because it happens to me all the time, because not that we have a no hands up policy, but I like to call call as much as I can. Uh, obviously, um, you know, if you have, um, you know, senior leaders are covering your class or if you have supply teachers coming in and they don't know names my god is that so difficult to try and call call and get someone to answer a question where they're just like you know i've worked at my school a fair while now i don't know everyone's name yet sometimes i do just have to be like i'll just go with that person with the hand up because i don't want to go oi yeah you i don't <laughs> know your name but i want you to answer sometimes it's easy to go oh Lovely. Thank you for offering that answer. Super. And then I might say, do you agree with them? You know, that kind of thing to make sure that the person's still involved. But yeah, it's one to think about, make sure that there's a way to, if you do have supply teachers coming in on a regular basis or you know, someone covers those lessons who may not, you know, get to know the names of those pupils um, as quickly, there probably needs to be some system in place that means that you know, they can engage with that process as well. You've just reminded me of something that happened to me when I was first, because obviously you have your own class, you learn the names, you can do all that. And then you go to model teaching for other teachers. And one of the first times I ever did that, I remember it was like with a group of like five or six year olds. And I ended up saying, um, you, young man, <laughs> it's like, like, you can't call a five year old or a six year old young man. It's like, oh, no, this is this is quite embarrassing because obviously you're being watched by the teacher in question as well. But um, yeah. I lived it down eventually. Yeah. But I think that just goes to show like, you know, one of the pitfalls of like cold calling, you know, if we're expecting teachers to come in and like team teach and all of that kind of thing, like, yeah, there are some, you know, small little barriers, not over, I mean, obviously not over insurmountable, just the classic, you know, label and write your name on it and stick it on you whilst Mr. Such comes and teach you, you know, it's, it's all fine. And this is perfectly normal and what we do all the time, all the time. I had to do it quite a lot. I mean, I had 1,032 kids across my three schools for a long time. And the mobility sometimes, I'd be like, who are these kids? I've never seen them before. Um, so I would, at the start, when I first worked with them, I would say, I'm going to gesture, open palm, sort of in their, in their direction. And then they would start their response with their name. And then eventually, I would have their names next time, you know? So that, that was my, but with five-year-olds, that's that's pretty tricky. So you know, there are probably just linguistic ways around that kind of situation and for how you phrase the questions. 
for me, the biggest pitfall might be on a strategic level when it the, the purpose gets lost and it becomes a surface level sort of shell. And, um, you know, so the no hands up remains, but actually the, the point of, of cold calling is lost. And then, you know, it, it, it becomes pointless. Because if you think about what it's essentially designed to replace, it's designed to replace things like lollipop sticks where you're just asking random questions, you know? So if question is becoming more deliberate and more purposeful, then, you know, I think that could be something to watch out for across the school. Like you say, Chris, across all the teachers, you know, reporting back and where do we go from here? Because there's no point in doing something that's not going to be impactful. So the next question says, hi, Karen. do you have any thoughts about maths testing in year one? Should there be formalized testing as opposed to teacher judgment? Can I just say no? Is that, can I say yeah, no? You, like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like formalized, uh, yeah, I, it depends what you mean by formalized testing, but I can, I'm really struggling to think of any circumstance in which you've got all 30 kids quietly getting on with something that will provide you with information that is useful when they are five or six is, is the short answer. Um, if, if by formalized testing they mean, Oh, I'm going to sit down with so with a child one to one, and I've got this little pattern of stuff I'm going to work through to see where how the number one development's getting on. And by formal, I mean it's going to be like step by step. I'm going to make sure I do this with all the kids while doing it really kind of in a fun, sensitive way. Then maybe, but I'm guessing that's not what we're referring to here. Yeah, Chris is taking my answer. Whoever asked the question, you'd have to really uh, you know dig deep as to what they mean by formally, particularly in maths. I think like. I think a lot of it should just be, let's say, you providing the opportunities for them to perform something and then you just using like observation to infer whether they are being successful. I don't necessarily think there's much use for the teacher anyway. Um, with that, some SLT-like data, so some may go, we want to measure progress and so we want to provide, you know, um, there are various... Um, Maths companies out there um, that do kind of provide, you know, formalized assessments for that age group. So you can get a, a norm reference test, which means that you can kind of you know, judge that uh, cohort against a sort of national average. Uh, again, I think just that the inferences of those kind of assessments on five and six year olds is uh, yeah, dodgy at best. So can you really take much from it? I don't know. I don't think the, the spreadsheet can, but perhaps the teacher who knows those kids and does that assessment and kind of has a look and see what those scores are and realizes that you know, little Kieran actually usually does much better than that, but today he hasn't. So, you know, but then you've got to think about, well, was that the best use of Kieran's time, et cetera, et cetera. So on the whole, I'd say no, but I kind of understand why some leaders may, you know, want to want to do it. But in terms of it being valid and useful in terms of the inferences it's probably not as one to do because the leaders have told you to do it i mean if you talk about statistical noise i can't think of a noisier place than year one when they're all of a sudden expected to behave in a slightly different way than they have been in their previous experience in school some of them can't go to the toilet some of them you know most of them can't write their name and then you're expecting that to be some sort of valid um data point yeah, I'm not convinced. I mean, 
we would uh, we would have rid of tests in in year two as well, Neil. You know, we've been going back a long time. We've been trying to wait for the for the the end of Keisty's uh, one sats. So <laughs> one you know, more term, one more. Term. Is that all? I mean, this, this is the last year, unless years. unless you know, pandemic. 2.0, 3.0, however you want to, whatever your accounting system is for it happens, then they should still be going next year. Just one other thing on this kind of subject of assessment um, at this age. The stuff I really want to know about kids at this age is the stuff I'm doing all the time anyway. It's it's the little and often stuff. It is the stuff relating to number bonds, understanding like bits and pieces about their spatial awareness. It's the stuff that I'm doing all day. Well, not all day, but I'm doing every day or every few days. And so I'm picking up on it compared to, say, like year six, where if you want to know how whether they remember what you taught them about perimeter and ratio. Yeah, you might need an assessment that kind of has that breadth. But at that age, there are some key things that I want to know that uh, make that I sense will make let me know that they're prepared for the next step in their mathematics education and crucially there's it's the stuff that we're talking about that we're doing that we're playing games with all the time anyway so i'd be very surprised if i got to the end of the year and i felt like i needed to do a formal assessment to learn that stuff is there anywhere i can go to support the podcast no, I'm only joking. I just wanted an intro for the uh, for Lloyd's song. It's fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> that was good. I was like, who, who would ask that question? <laughs> I was well tempted to say, nah, nothing. Not like I can think of. No, but yeah, the, the song is is wonderful. It's it's glorious. I've 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 had no. I mean, at the time of recording, have had no mentions from Kofi listeners. So clearly, they're just happy supporting the podcast without listening to it. <laughs> anything else so yeah so i mean yeah if you do want to support the podcast you can go to www.kofi ko-fi forward slash tadape t-d-a-p-e dot com for all of you kofi kofi kofufu however you pronounce it you damn lovely supporters it's a song going out to you to you Stephanie Taylor, Mrs. B. Satea, Adam, Katie, Liv, Dempsey, Becca, Jenford, Susie, Brown, and Sio, Nechio, Rachel, I am out, Jessica, Tom, Oakley, Tom, Brassington, Jessica, Tom, Oakley, Tom, Brassington, LJ, and last but not least, my lovely little Amy Bills, so they help us pay the bills, so a massive thank you out to Dappy family. Coffee supporters help us keeping it at free. There's far more content coming just round the bend. Thank you all for helping our very special friends. Friends. Very special friends. The next one's a pretty serious one. It says.
I started in September, teaching that is. I've never been so tired. I'm thinking about leaving teaching. There's just too much to do and not enough time. How do other teachers manage their time and the stress that comes with the role? Kind of like two levels where that works on and you can't really, to a degree, you can't really separate them. Because obviously there's, you know, whatever's been asked in your school and obviously where you, I think that's one of the like really good things about like Twitter and things like that is that kind of democratization of the kind of knowing what's just happening in other schools that isn't just like your insular school that you know you're that you kind of just know because as you say teacher is all consuming that sometimes you know particularly in around October November sometimes you wonder whether you've actually like seen any daylight because you're up before uh, the sun comes up you do what you need to do and you're so focused on the job and then you leave when the sun comes down and you think there's no time to yourself so obviously you know if you can if you know that your school isn't the right place or you know there are various red flags that what you're being asked to do is perhaps you know beyond the regular remit of perhaps you know contemporaries who went to um university with you or teach first whatever it is or that you you know if you're started in September you know those people that are in your ECT um, conference group or mentor groups yeah get chatting to them and work out whether what's happening is and what's been asked of you is the norm because that's probably really that's like the best place to start because once you know that you know that there's a clear trajectory here that well this isn't normal so therefore you know it's certainly a, a teacher's market out there right now in terms of, uh, you know, uh, jobs. So as long as you know, there are roles available for you or your subject or you know, a geographical area that works for you, you, know, you can jump ship quite quickly. And I always kind of tell, you know, being an ECT facilitator, you know, do I have to start the ECT year all over again? Does this look bad? You know, no, absolutely not, you know far better for you to move schools two terms in rather than you you know leave the profession two terms in um if however the answer to that question is you know everyone feels what's been asked of you is you know really kind of reasonable i i think i've mentioned on the podcast a few times i'm personally just a big fan of the um the eisenhower matrix which is just basically a, a quadrant where you have some headings of it's you know, important, not important, urgent and not urgent. Spend the first couple of times just thinking about, right, actually, you know, what do I need to do right now? Um, block out and kind of codify all those tasks. See if it's important and urgent, then you need to do it. If it's not urgent and not important, but someone's asked you to do it, generally, you know, sack it off. Don't do it because no one's going to ask you to do it. If it's important but not urgent, then it's not something you need to tackle straight away. And if it's really urgent but not important, well, then you, if something's urgent but not that important, you perhaps need to question, you know, why it's there in the first place as well. And once you've kind of done that for yeah, a couple of months, maybe you kind of get into the habit of understanding, you know, what's um, the kind of thing that you would go to do and that you wouldn't necessarily do. And I've found out when I went on a middle leadership course way back that that was just a useful kind of conceptual framework for me for which I could organize various tasks um, and it did cut down my workload 
you know, a fair little bit. I don't know whether it's probably not the right thing to do, so perhaps don't do it, but I'm very much of the impression if it's really important, someone will email me twice about it. Um, you know, there have been quite a few tasks where um, someone has said, oh, can you do that? And I know that if I didn't answer that question, I wouldn't hear from them again because they're so busy that you know, they get caught up in everything and, you know, it just end, doesn't end up happening. Um, if it's really important and really urgent, then hopefully, you know, they'll also, you know, come and talk to you in person about it and have that kind of bit of, you know, dignified human to human interaction if it's, you know, something like that. Then I think as well, you know, talk to an experienced teacher, find out what those pinch points are around, um, uh, you know, the school year, you know, find out when those assessment weeks are so you know that, you know, you're planning assessments, so you know that in your planning, you're not going to, you know, get the kids to write uh, a long piece of work, which you will have to, you know, take home and read. Ask about reports and what templates they use for reporting and the expectations for reports earlier on. And so, so you can start kind of, you know, building those bits and pieces up. This time last year, if I wouldn't say this, but, you know, Chats GPT does have some useful functionality. If it is just the, the mundane paperwork that you feel like, you know, you have to do and, you know, I've already seen, you know, a few use cases of, you know, it, you know, not doing all the work, but as I say, what I, the way I kind of feel chat GTP is really kind of useful. You take the Pareto principle is that, you know, 80% of the work comes from like 20% effort. Um, it probably does like the first, like perhaps like 15% of that effort for you. And then you just kind of have to do, uh, you know, make it pretty at the end and you know sort it all out and tailor what you need but you know it's written I've seen it people use it to write assemblies I've seen people to you know write closed questions I've seen people use it to write some you know some comprehension questions you know that's you know that's fine I think you know the environment of you know the teaching profession is so under the spotlight now as to what teachers actually are you know having to do and that you know I can't help but and I'm usually quite skeptical about all of these things but you know I do feel like a change is eventually coming not too soon otherwise I do think you know England will find itself in a situation where you know all the best teachers have gone to work for uh, you know third-party organizations who still do a lot of education uh, you know work but obviously you know the classroom is where the learning you know actually happens yeah i'm slightly skeptical about that last bit i've got a feeling that whatever government comes in is just gonna like hold on for dear life while this bulge population works its way through the education system and then afterwards go oh we've got enough teachers again just about I've, I've got a suspicion that they're just gonna nudge class class sizes up to like 35 or pushing 40 in some places and just hold on for dear life First thing to note is it's an obvious thing to say, but it's easy to forget. Everything to you is new. Every single thing you're doing is new. It is slower. It is more stressful as a result. Everything feels overwhelming when it is new. Um, if you've ever like moved home and you've then, or you've, you've moved home and you've got a new supermarket, how much it takes you twice as long to get around the supermarket to buy what you want just because you don't understand the layout first year of teaching is like that first time in the supermarket. It's stressful. It feels noisier. Nothing is on autopilot. When you get to your second, third, fourth year of teaching, increasingly bits more and more becomes 
on autopilot it's because you're unconsciously competent at it so it will get easier is kind of the first thing to say but loads of good advice from neil as well in terms of making it easier sooner from my experience of those first couple of years of teaching um there is 20 percent of stuff you're asked to do usually by senior leaders that is actually optional you know like oh we'd really like you to do this thing with these art books maybe that's one of those optional things and trying to find out what they are by discussing it with other teachers asking to go and look at their books their working walls their displays whatever it might be find that try and find that 20 percent of stuff that actually some of the experienced teachers realize they don't need to do to a particularly high standard or at all again might sound obvious but you might not be doing this already or you might not have taken this advice already don't volunteer for anything when someone says oh this thursday i'm not here can someone take my club and there's that silence around the staff room while they wait for someone to say oh okay i will there is a temptation to be that person to to set the standard no one is expecting that from you as an nqt keep quiet do not volunteer for stuff if you are struggling better to have you still in the profession than have everyone at your school think uh, you're amazing but then you leave adequacy is plenty good enough is because again you'll be tempted to say oh but i can do this better no just whenever you get to the point where you think oh this is probably good enough stop be that planning or be that you know working walls be that any other form of preparation good enough is in terms of whether the school you're at is right for you and I think Neil talked about that more broadly. I would say quite specifically, if you are doing lots of marking, start shopping around at the end of this year, because there are better options out there for you in terms of your work-life balance. This is not to say that schools should never do any form of marking and you shouldn't check books, et cetera, et cetera, potentially. But if you are spending five, 10 hours a week writing, writing individual notes to children in their books, that's incredibly inefficient. That is not for the sake of learning, I don't think. As Neil said, it's a tough time of year. Waiting to see how you feel after the summer term has been and gone. Um, yes, there's lots of stressful bits and pieces to do with the end of the school year, like reports, but it does feel very different when you're getting home and it's still light. Um, and I guess the final bit of advice is ask for help. Don't, don't just quietly struggle speak to more experienced teachers, speak to senior leaders and say, I, I, I'm, I'm not waving, I'm drowning. Go, go to them for help. In a lot of cases, they are really busy themselves and just might not have noticed. And there is a squeaky wheel gets the grease um, element to this. Don't be afraid to be that squeaky wheel. Yeah, I think Laura McInerney shared a teacher top survey I think 2018, 40% of teachers said they'd retrain to be a teacher. And it was down to something like 23% this time round. You know, so there's quite a lot of... one for primary. That was the average 21 for primary school, 25 for secondary. You know, so, I mean, this, this, this might be a common thought. So if, that's why I thought it was worth including. I mean, I think you guys have absolutely nailed the response. You know, there are things that we can do in depending on what the factors are. That are that are causing sort of a dissatisfaction, perhaps even a bit more than dissatisfaction. Um, so yeah, so really consider what you guys have said and then sort of take action based on that. And I think that might that could be helpful for a, a lot of teachers. And and yeah, I hope you're I hope you're wrong on the political sort of prediction, Chris. I hope that it, it gets a a proper investment uh, 
sometime soon. One last bit of advice that I completely forgot about and wish I'd known about in my first year, the magic three words, last year's planning. You'll be surprised how often people don't realize that as an NQT, just being able to take a look at last year's planning, adapt to last year's planning, be it for science, for history, or whatever, that might be an option in a lot of circumstances that you don't realize. Maybe not. Maybe they've not got it saved everywhere or anywhere. Maybe you are expected to plan everything completely from scratch with no support. But if in doubt, just the question, do we have last year's planning for this? It can save you a lot of time and a lot of stress and give you a way to see hopefully effective planning done by someone else that can support you in your development as well. You need to tell that to Kate. She's been teaching 14 years and she seems to be still planning, even though I know the curriculum that she's using, that she's used for the last five or six years. And why are you still doing history planning? That that You should have that thing nailed. <laughs> so um, old habits die hard. You know, is, is that a movie? I mean, that could be a movie, couldn't it? So, I mean, you mentioned working walls a couple of times there. This is a question that I get lots and lots and lots about. I don't know about you guys. Um, but I just wondered if you could point me in the right direction of any research or guidance on working walls, particularly in English, but anything would be a good starting point. The question is taking you point to any research. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know what that would look like. <laughs> um, so many variables, like what you're trying to measure there, how like how you could somehow isolate the working wall as being the sole factor that would somehow you know improved learning or not I, I don't know um I've never been a fan I think they take a lot of teacher effort um I think they take a lot of SLT time if it's something that it's you know that they privilege and I'm kind of half of the mindset that really like there can, if kids know that it's there, then it could give the impression, well, you don't need to remember this kids um, because it's always going it, to, it's up there for you, which is why I, I proudly don't have a times table chart, you know, in, in year six, because don't want them to refer to the times table chart I, I want them to know it I have a few tucked away that if you know the odd kid that I know really struggles with it they can have one and you know it's you know, given out to them but not up there for everyone to you know use and refer to um I wouldn't the same for working walls I think they look nice they look pretty of course they do I'm sure some children do find them useful and and handy um but that, you know, that cost benefit that it means that it takes to a make them maintain them, you know, to the learning gains that they may or may not produce. I don't think it's right, but if someone does find some way to do some research on that, and it's you know, yeah, we run a an RCT, and this class had the exact same lesson, and this class had the exact same lesson, or you know, sequences of lessons. But the only difference was that. Um, you know, this working wall that was there and like referred to, and this one didn't have a working wall that was referred to. And I'm sure Chris would be able to mention many other variables that I wouldn't be able to, that I can't think about right now. Um, and you know, the gains were statistically significant, then maybe I'd change my mind, but. Yeah, I, I, yeah, obviously I, I'm totally in agreement that I don't think there's any like robust research 
around the use of working walls or displays more generally. I think the closest that I've seen, and I wouldn't even describe this necessarily as robust because it's just like one study that looked very vaguely at how busy certain displays were and then said, oh, well, this middle ground seems to be better. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, you know, draw, draw too many firm conclusions from that. I do think that a working wall under certain circumstances can be used quite well. You know, you've modelled some writing, you want to stick it up on, on the wall. They can become a bit of a, a problem. Like I worked in a school where I was genuinely asked to write the date on the bottom right-hand corner of anything that I put on the working wall so that um, SLT, when they walked around, could work out whether anything had been on the wall for more than like a week. Um, but it, yeah. And that was that was late in my career, and um, I I was not writing the date on anything, um, but they they let me get away with it. Part of that twenty percent I mentioned earlier. What I would say is no, we don't really know a great deal about them. I would say use use the the, the displays that you have, the working walls you have, in whatever way you think appears to be um, valuable to your class, makes your life a bit easier. Beyond that. I don't think there's any good advice I can give. I mean, I think on Craig Barton's blog, he has a bit about the the absence of research. I think at the time we we discussed this and we sort of gave a, a joint response to the last person who asked this, the person whose question I phrased here. And I think that they, they sort of knew what the answer was coming, you know, so I'd be very surprised. But what I am surprised by is how the how they managed to become such a well, such a prevalent part of of classroom decor with the, you know, because Neil's first sentence, you know, how could you possibly work out if it was the learning wall that was, that was impactful or not, you know, how did he get past the front gates? It should have been, you know, awesome. So I hope you guys have enjoyed your opportunity to opine on a range of subjects. All they have to do is say, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Chris. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much, Neil. Thank you so much. Enjoyed it. And everyone at home, if you've got a question, you can send it to thinkingdeeplyinfo at gmail.com. But until next time, thanks for listening.